Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. It is time for episode 122, and we have for you more than two hours of Graham McMillan and I discussing everything under the four-color sun. Topics today include Days of Future Past, Bandette, the Eisners, our favorite capes, Ultimo by Stan Lee and Hiroyuki Takai, Age of Ultron, Jackson Guise, Harvey Picard, Chris Samney, Eddie Campbell, Spawn, This Week in Al Ewing, John Severin, and our good friend, much, much, much more. Modest but robust show notes are available over at SavageCritic.com. And, as always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan! I'm going to start this episode off with an update that I think you will be fascinated by and listeners will be shut up by. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to hear where it goes from here. Tell me. Apparently, they have been placing new internet uh, cables for CenturyLink or internet provider in our area over recent months and they have just finished and they apologized after the fact for shitty internet service. Maybe that's why we keep getting cut off. Sons of bitches. Wow. After the fact. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, we'll see. This could be another episode where we get suddenly cut off again. Exactly. But it, it, I was when I heard that, I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Exactly, exactly. Well, we will see. I've got, I've got my fat little fingers crossed, so. Your fingers aren't fat. They're slender and beautiful <laughs> like the rest of you. They're curvy. <laughs> Thank you. You sexy beast. You know just what to say. So... <laughs> Although I have to say, considering the number of waffles I've been eating to train up for the Portland trip, that may not you may want to double check those fingers when I show up. You'll be I will. I, I think that you're gonna be hiding your fingers in your now ample beard, Jeff. That is true. That is true. And good lord, man, um I took up some I took some close up pictures of my beard to, with the idea <laughs> of Why? I was going to use it as my Twitter avatar, so that it would just be like beard hair, like there wouldn't be any Jeff in there, it would just be all beard, and I felt like it would be such a natural progression for my uh, avatar image, in, but it was it was almost a little too disturbing. Plus, it it was hard to tell what you were looking at, really. Well, that that would be the concern. If you're taking it so you couldn't see the rest of you, I, I can't even imagine that someone would be able to look and be like, oh, that's a beard. Yeah, exactly. I'm supposed like... to, what is that? Is that a carpet? What the fuck? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yes, yes, that is true. Hands will be hidden in the beard, not unlike today's comics. Okay. No, are they, are they really, hidden in the beard? No, 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 no. I was kind of hoping that there would be. <laughs> some sort I, I of was better. like, where are you going with that? <laughs> the great part was that's totally what your silence said. And more, Graham, and much that, more. That's good. Well, I, I, as I've admitted to you in email, and I, I will now admit to readers, uh, listeners, I should say, I have read almost nothing this week. Um, I have read last week's DC's uh, comps, which they came in on Tuesday for some reason, mm-hmm. um, and a couple of things from this week, and that's about it. I am, I am, I have, I've pretty much stayed away from anything resembling new comics lately. Hmm. Mm, interesting. I've been prosing it. I've been rereading Marvel Comics: The Untold Story and uh, Catelyn Moran's book at the same time and switching between them, which it makes both much more enjoyable. Huh. I'm sorry. Uh, who, who's the other book? Of course, I know Sean Howe's. Uh, Catelyn Moran, the who did How to Be a Woman, and she's her. She's a British journalist, and she's got a book out called More Anthology. 
uh, which is a collection of her Times pieces, and it was available on Kindle for two ninety nine. And I was like, I liked her last book. That's three dollars. Oof, that's fantastic. I know. Hmm. Is it still that price? Do you know? I'll have to look. I, I have no idea. Well, you're lucky in that I have read I, I because what readers, <laughs> what listeners do not know is I too have been pretty shabby on the old uh, comic books reading front. Uh, what what when, I like is both of us haven't read that much recent stuff, but I know that w- the one thing that we have definitely both read mm-hmm. is the one thing that I think we're both only reading for this podcast. You've Age got... of Ultron? Yeah, <laughs> Age of Ultron. Like, I, I, I read Age of Ultron issue 6 pretty much because I figured you and I were going to talk about it. Yes. You know what? We should... Hold on. Okay. Whatnots, don't worry. I am now setting a timer for five minutes. And this will be the <laughs> oh, amount of time that we will be given mm-hmm, to talk about Age of Ultron. So, five minutes, go. Yeah, Age of Ultron number six. Now, you misunderstood what I said when I emailed you. I said that it had com- uh, coloring book art. And you came back and oh, was I like... Thought you were, I thought you were saying the colors were a problem. I, I agree. It does have coloring book art. Mm-hmm. Here's the question. What happened to Carlos Pacheco and Brandon Peterson? I, I don't... Because their art didn't used to look like that, Jeff. No. No, it didn't. Well, you know, honestly, I... um, It's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, I almost feel, it, it, at least with Pacheco... um. I, I think the inking definitely is a problem because it's it's a different inker from normal. I almost I almost wonder if they were doing little more than breakdowns. I mean, Pacheco's stuff sort of looks like him, but in a weirdly hollowed out fashion. You know, to me, yeah. the first page of Wolverine and Invisible Woman in the Savage Land mm-hmm. is has a couple of just like really weird uh, headshots. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. the point where. You, you know, if this was the olden days, you'd think some other artist has fixed that up and then they've pasted it in. Cause it just does not look like his work. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff where you're like, oh, yeah, that's totally Carlos Pacheco. Mm-hmm. But but there are definitely moments where you're like, what happened? Yeah. And, and Peterson's art has Peterson's finish, but I remember him actually knowing what a body looked like. Like, there, there's a point where Storm is flying, and I swear to God, she has, like, Spider-Man's, like, web pit thing going. <laughs> you know, it, it is true. So the art is really bad and rushed, and I think so thoroughly puts to the lie anything that could have been said that suggested that other otherwise, essentially. any Anything that not that I'm really in the habit of believing Marvel's PR people, I think, anymore, but that looked like such rushed, dashed together art that I find it impossible to believe. Well, there, there's a couple of things that are fascinating about Age of Ultron's sort of publication schedule slash behind the scenesness right now. Mm-hmm. One is, as soon as Brian hitches off the book, the book goes from three times a month to twice a month. Mm-hmm. And also, has two artists on it all of a sudden, mm-hmm. which is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, the I put this on Blogger this week. The final issue, the Brian Hitch pages are it turns out to be eight pages of reprint. Oh yeah, you mentioned that, which sort of makes sense for me. I think partially because I think it's 
it wouldn't surprise me if they are going to like use part of the because it was the stuff that appeared in the Marvel point one issue or whatever. No, right? no, it's not. It's the stuff that appeared in Avengers twelve point one. Oh, the point because the one stuff issue. appeared right. in the Marvel point one issue mm-hmm. was actually in Age of Ultron issue one. Mm. Seven pages are the middle of Age of Ultron issue one. What? So, all right. So my thing is, is with time travel stuff, there's going to be some sort of like reused loop or, you know what I mean? Either a time loop or reinserted figures or something. I thought about that and I, but I'm not, I can, I can't really see what they're going to do with it because Avengers 12.1 actually happens, you know, if you believe this of Age of Ultron is happening now thing, happens two years before the rest of Age of Ultron. Mm. Ultron appears on one page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And literally appears and is like, oh, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and then disappears. Presumably because he's traveling through time. Right. Um, But I don't know, like, all I can think is they're going to reuse the art and it's going to be relettered. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. new, new, like, captions being like, they thought I traveled through time, but I didn't. I just went invisible using my Ultron invisibility circuits. That would be great. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just... It's weird. Like, the more we find out about Age of Ultron, the more you're kind of like, what is the plan for this comic? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, no kidding. It really is. Uh, and I finished that up, kind of finished up that issue going, wow, I, you know, also I have to say, fucking, if this is such a, and, and admittedly, I'm old and nostalgic and also running out our clock, but like Days of Future Past, the original two-issue Claremont burn thing, man, that went from being a good story to being some sort of crazy lost uh, renaissance masterpiece now, doesn't it? I mean, just in terms of... <laughs> no, no, Jeff, I have to say, you think that, but maybe you should reread Days of Future Past. Dude, it's looking better all the time. I mean, believe me, it's Claremonty at his most... Claire- Claremont and, and Byrne kind of almost turning into parodies of themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it is hilarious reading it back, because I, re- I read it couple of months ago maybe um for a thing can you hear the timer what's that <laughs> well that was the timer but then i put the iphone up to the microphone and forgot it was vibrating so, <laughs> <laughs> so um, um okay, so let, let's just talk about uh, days of future days past. of future past yes okay yeah. so you were saying um yeah it's it's not aged well jeff mm. and I, i'd argue that i don't think that claremont and burns X-Men in general has aged well. Mm, interesting. Which is really weird because it's so... And I don't know if it's because it's so iconic. Th- at this point, I think everyone who likes superhero comics has probably read it at least once. Well, I, I think there's... And it's, I think it's safe to say that everyone who works in the comics industry has, like, ripped it off at least once. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think... Th- I'm sure there's somebody who hasn't. Well, I... But... And so, Scott I Scott think- Snyder has never ripped off Days of Future Past. <laughs> <laughs> give it... Give it time. He's writing Superman now, so you know it's just a matter of time. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, my theory, and it's a little bit the same, but also different, is I feel that part of the reason why Claremont Byrne X-Men has not aged well is... How do I put it? It's... It wasn't good in the first place. No, 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 no. I don't think that that's actually the case. That's, that's your conclusion? Jeff. Yeah. No, I just, I just want a controversial Jeff. Oh, oh, controversial Jeff. Okay, well, I'll see what I can do to pump that up. Sadly, my my point is just going to be that essentially that's, their run was so iconic and their characteristics so came into full 
blossom during that period that I think part of the thing that's wrong is at least for me revisiting it I can't read it without basically seeing all the years of what I think is bad Claremont and bad Byrne and bad X-Men stories that follow it. That, that's really I mean? interesting. We've talked in the past about uh, Watchmen and how Watchmen is very different to read now than when it was when it came out because yes. so many people have ripped it off. And I think it's I think that's a similar thing. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to read it uh, in the same way that the original audience did or in the same way that it was created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm talking about X-Men and Watchmen now. Yeah. Um, because you have read so many, let's be polite and say, things that were influenced by them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're so familiar with the tropes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that what, I mean, Days of Future Past, I presume when you first read it, probably would have been, holy shit, you're seeing the death of the X-Men. Oh, right. God. Right. Whereas now you're like, yeah, it's an alternate future. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, there's time travel. Right. Uh, yeah, they're going to end up, it's going to be a time loop. Right. Well, see, and that's it. I think there's a variety of things that had sort of been minorly done in variations. I mean, by the time you get to Days of Future Past, you've already had a whole slew of alternate future Marvel comics, you know? And you've even had things like uh, Steve Gerber's Defenders, where he tries to lay most of the the future timelines into, like, one timeline, I suppose. Um, Or you see stuff like uh, the Marvel team-up story, where Bill Mantlo propels Spider-Man, like, like both into the past, and then slingshots him into the future, so he meets all these characters. And, how do I put it? There's always kind of that sense of, like, the heroes are sort of there, but not there. You know what I mean? And they're they're, they're they usually happen in a future where um, the Marvel heroes have disappeared, but are kind of iconic, and you don't necessarily know what happened to them. Whereas the thing that I think is interesting, the the reason why Days of Future Past so snaps it into place, is that you get to see, um, you know. Uh, you get to see these guys actually dying and their tombstones and this is what killed them and it's really kind of the first time that you see that kind of thing happen in a Marvel comic like before all their alternate futures were very very distanced out you know like you just yeah exactly it it would be you know well they might have died from old age right exactly it's just like it's thousands of years in the future no one would expect them to live that long or hundreds of years or whatever it just was not a big deal but you know Claremont and Byrne went for the very direct approach of like, no, here are these guys, um, and they died, and this is the thing that killed them. There's also, I also want to say that there is a bunch of stuff that we think of, I think, as relatively, um, well, for the other thing is, is honestly, the I think the sort of the secret admission, the 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 the, the extra piece for Days of Future Past is the fact that the older you make Wolverine, almost the better he works. You know, there's something about having old Logan like come back. Um, wait, does he come back? No, he doesn't Kitty come back. Kitty Pride comes it's, it's back, Kitty Pride's, and, yeah. and he leads the rest of them on the suicide mission seeing old Wolverine on the suicide mission you're like it, it just it just makes the character work and I feel like that's around the time they really started playing up like from then on the whole concept of Wolverine as like basically older than everyone around him and sort of that grizzled 
full-on Clint Eastwoody type character that, that they just keep coming back to again and again and again. Like, you also see that. I'm not really sure that that was prevalent before Days of Future Past. I think know? there was the concept of Wolverine being perhaps older than the rest of the X-Men, but I don't think you. it was significantly older. Right, exactly. You know, I think it was like, you know, maybe he was five years or so older, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was like, or maybe he's a hundred years older. Exactly, exactly. And, who knows? Uh, who yeah, knows? Yeah, when did, when did that actually come into X-Men lore? You know, because I, I remember as a mm-hmm. reader during the Jim Lee era when I was pretty much drifting away. Oh, yeah. Seeing the, and he fought with Cap- uh, Captain America and the Black Widow in the 40s. And I remember being like, what? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's funny because that is, I remember basically just buying that issue. Like, it's one of the few issues that I, long after I stopped, there's something about sort of the combination of the cover and the idea that I was like, oh, i got to grab this. And let's face it, to me, I'm like, the, I'm not, did they ever explain the Black Widow thing? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. No, I want to say, like, there's a vague explanation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, like, um, she's kind of got the, the infinity formula, but it was one of those, like, Claremont thought it was a good idea, and so fuck everyone else things. Right, right, exactly, right. <laughs> it could be. Um... I, I, for me, I remember reading, do you remember the X-Men Chronicles? Those, like, books that I think might have even been published by Fenographics that were, like, Uh, No, I I know they existed. I I haven't even seen one. Oh, man. I had both volumes of those when I was, when I say kid, I think, like, like late high school, early college, probably early college. X-Men Chronicles were, like, 80, we, hang on, we should probably explain this for the readers. The X-Men Chronicles was, like, an index, kind of, a, a sort of history of the, the, Uncanny X-Men series that I think you're right. I think it was published by Fantagraphics. Yeah, I think so. And well, it was like 84? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, the problem is, is there's the the actual books that were actual checklists, <laughs> you know, that, that they had for Spider-Man and all those things and stuff. But I think the X-Men Chronicles, as I recall, is... Um, was basically like Fantagraphics doing sort of comics journal interviews with all the guys who did the Uncanny X-Men stuff. And they, so it was long. And I swear I remember Byrne talking slash complaining that he'd had the idea of having, um, wanting to have a flashback sequence where Captain America basically is back in World War II and he meets Logan, who's like, uh, you know, fighting as like a private in the, as a, you know, in the Canadian Royal Forces or something like that. And he was like, I just wanted to be a little throwaway, in, you know, reference inside a Captain America story to make it seem something, you know, like seem, to suggest that the character was older, but also kind of that he wasn't always this character. And he, of course, was bitching that his frustrations were that, of course, Claremont wanted to take it take that idea and, as he does with all of John Byrne's ideas, destroy it by basically being like, no, but he's always been Logan, and he's always been like the master samurai warrior, gunfighter, you know, splooge maker. Um, well, what I love in rereading Marvel Comics The Untold Story is I always forget, like, I always for some reason think of Claremont as um, more about the characters than about the business, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, like very much like it's they're my babies. This is my story. Right. And so every time I read the bit about Claremont and Frank Miller coming up with the idea for the Wolverine miniseries on a car journey, and then basically be, Claremont being like, "I'm going to be a fucking millionaire." <laughs> <laughs> 
I love the idea the two of them were like had a card journey at the end of it. Claremont was just like, I'm doing a book with Frank Miller about ninjas. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's true, but I think it was also, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it seems to be one of those things that seems to have uh, stuck with Claremont as well. Like, I think those were, he didn't just give lip service to to Wolverine in Japan, you know, he definitely is something he brings back. I'm digging in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's not a Japan tourist. Yeah. And this is basically him from now on. Right. Right, exactly. And again, those things that I think just sort of, you know, went on to drive Burn crazy. Oh, anyway, so yeah, the X-Men, I think part of the problem really is, I mean, in Days of Future Past, but all of their stuff, everything that you see X-Men stories go on to be, everything you see Claremont go on to be, and Burn go on to be, is all, like, it all crystallizes there, and it's all kind of stuff that's, like, great, and then I just feel like gets all of the, you know, it just all gets pumped out of proportion you know everything it's hard for me to actually look at early stuff from burn now because i used to love his work and now i just i have that same like uh the dullness that i associate with the later it, work it's so strange because you, you actually do read it back and think i love this mm-hmm. i remember uh, i came to burn later than you i i my you know contemporary burn for want of a better way of putting it was the superman stuff right right um and I remember at the time, that was just, that was the bee's knees. So mm-hmm. the burnt Superman was just amazing to me, to the point where, like, Jerry, I'd read Adventures of Superman and Jerry Ordway and it'd be Mark Wolfman, and I would have a, oh, if only John Byrne was drawing this. This Jerry Ordway guy, no. Mm-hmm. He, does, he doesn't draw like John Byrne. What? <laughs> I remember um, John Byrne, because I, I basically got into DC properly, quote-unquote, um, with the Legends miniseries, which was like 1986. Oh, yes, right, right. Um, which was John Byrne. Yes. Being like Darkseid and all the DC heroes, right? right? Uh, and it, it led into the Given to Matthews Justice League. Mm-hmm. Among other uh, things. Among um, three yeah, other things. Yeah, there, there was... Um, there Suicide was Squad and... and the, the Flash. And Power of Shazam, I think, right? Yeah, no, just Shazam. Shazam, uh, Shazam oh, the New Beginning, I think it was called. Uh, okay, Shazam, the New Beginning. Uh, Power and... of Shazam was much later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so so Burn's drawing it, and I'm, you know, I'm in Kid Heaven, because it's Burn inked by Carl Kiesel, so, I mean, that is, that's kind of my Burn. Right. Like, Burn's pencils with that sharpness of inks. Right. Perfect for me. Um and so Guy Gardner's in there and it's the first time I've read Guy Gardner and then I remember going over to read Engelhardt Staten's Green Lantern Corps and Given to Matthews' mm. um, Justice League right. and both times I was like they're not drawing Guy Gardner right <laughs> like he's, he's not and that's not what his hair looks like what mm-hmm. no right. no because for me like Burn crystallized those characters for me yeah exactly you know that, that's what they looked like like when at uh, the end of the first issue of Legends you see the Detroit era Justice League mm-hmm. who I'd been reading on and off by then but I don't I don't know why Legends was like it but Legends was the one where I was like I can get on board this right well um, it makes sense because it, it was... well it kind of was it was the hey everyone we're finished Crisis come join us right exactly it's kind of like we've got a new thing going on and it's going to be really easy to follow and it's going to go like really exciting places yeah, um, but so so Byrne draws 
the Detroit era Justice League at the end at the end of the first issue. And I remember just being like, "Oh man, this is they're awesome! Look, this is what they're meant to look like." Mm-hmm. Fuck Luke McDonald over the Justice League. <laughs> look, John Burns drawing them. Right. Oh man, this is perfect. Right. And now, like, I just I don't even really understand that reaction to it anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I do know what you're... Well, I, you know, actually, it's really funny because um, this is going to be really... I don't think I'm going to be able... Once again, because I'm like, ah, I minimized my browser and kept it turned off to avoid these problems that we don't even really have to worry about having. Uh, one of the dudes that I follow on... Uh, Twitter that I highly recommend for anyone that is approaching uh, old fart status is the guy who posts for um, basically he posts links to John Byrne's work and also runs quotes from John Byrne. Oh yeah, John Byrne says. I, John yeah, Byrne John Byrne, Byrne speaks or John yeah. Byrne draws. Yeah, some, something like that. John Byrne says, "I'll ha- please check out the show notes at savagecritic.com. I really do love. That that guy is such an amazing like he's really just like a fan source done right I think I mean later on I'll maybe find out something horrible but he really is like he posts stuff he says he has things that Burns says both good and bad and I've seen people like Eric Larson from you know Image basically ask him questions about Burn you know and and there's like. And he's able to answer because he's such a super fan. And it's this weird, like... This is when we find out it's actually John Byrne. <laughs> well, see, that's it. He can't be because he's sane. And the fact that, that people really would be happy to interact... I would be happy to interact with John Byrne if he was, like, a sane dude. Um, it's kind of fascinating getting some of these things. Like, he's actually pointing people to resources or answering questions to the best of his knowledge. But because he posts so many um, links to burns commissions some of those commissions do not look great um you know but some of them and some of them are very recent look really good and when burn is cracking i feel how do i put it he's got some sort of design sense or something that that kind of that i respond to and not so much i don't think in any of his like new character designs or anything like that but his ability to look at it at a character and sort of see what he thinks makes it work, you know? I mean, I don't know, you probably, I don't know if you were actually following this stuff back when you were so excited about, about him on Superman, and, but, you know, he, there were a lot of articles where he was, interviews, where he was talking about, like, sort of which era of Superman he was pulling bits and pieces from, you know? Oh, yeah, no, I remember, because I, I, I was I was the Burn Superfan back then, so oh, okay. anytime I saw an interview with him, I'd be like, I'm a trade. <laughs> I like the voice too, um, I, you know. And so, so Burn is really, and that's one of the things that I thought he did. Weirdly enough, that I think he got much better at as time went on, almost to the detriment of, you know, it's precisely the time where my interest in him as a storyteller really started to go downward. Um, there was also just something that was frustrating because I remember being so excited picking up, like. I really picking up his Superman and especially his action stuff where I was like, Oh my God, he's going to be drawing a different classic DC hero with Superman every month. This is going to be great. And they were, the stories were just so terrible. You know I mean? Yeah. They were atrocious. That's another thing that you go back and reread and you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. 
Because I, I, I loved it. I loved it at the time. <laughs> That's not true. I loved action. Superman, right. I, I was hot and cold on because of the stories. Yeah. But action, I loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For, for that very reason. Yeah. Holy shit. Who's the demon? I've never heard of the demon before. This is great. Oh, my God. It's the Phantom Stranger. I don't know who this is, but look at him. <laughs> He's a guy in a trench coat with a, a hat and white eyes. Oh, my God. And, and again... That made uh like those were those were the ways the characters looked, quote unquote, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I totally get that. And I do feel that there's something because their burn style is appealing enough and because he really does put thought into how he's gonna make those characters look, um, he really can sort of catch them. It's kinda like, Oh yeah, great. And I think that's to me sort of precisely again, part of where it starts to go wrong is he care, starts caring too much about the finish as opposed to the storytelling? I think that's it. It's one part finish to one part... Like, somehow it contributes to the calcifications of the characters. Like, I don't know how to put it in any other way, but it's like he renders them, but it's precisely because he's so reverent in rendering them that it's almost like nothing happens to them. You know what I mean? Like, there's just something like, as much as I loved how he draws Darkseid, and still, to this day, um, he can draw Darkseid, and I'm like, yeah, that, like, that's it. That's like, it's weird, because it's like, it's everything that I feel when I look at Kirby's Darkseid, and in fact, when I've gone back and looked at stuff in the omnibus, I'm like, oh, right, like, my idea of Darkseid is much closer now to how Byrne renders him than how he appears at various parts and pieces in by Kirby. You know? Oh yeah, I remember the first time I saw Kirby's Dark Side, which was in a Who's Who in the DC Universe. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, "What the fuck is this?" Shit? <laughs> <laughs> purple dudes, <laughs> purple dudes with big eyes. What the fuck is that? Uh huh. Uh huh. Totally. Totally. And he still pops up in those in in uh, aspects of that where it was like, you know, whether it was speed or still, you know, thinking. Or I honestly think that. For for Darkseid was a far more organic creation uh, of Kirby's, even by Kirby's standards. And so there's a lot of fluidity in the way that he approaches and draws the character. Not just when he revisits him for, by the time of the Hunger Dogs and the Super Friends series, and probably when he drew that Who's Who portrait, but but even back in the early things, there's times where he's superimposing. There's times where he sort of looks more like fat than actually muscular there's times where he actually looks gaunt and old you know and and so there's a variety of i i sort of wonder if it'd be great to have a, a version of dark side that does change a little bit visually um well, what i think it is and this is me projecting entirely and nothing that's in the text mm-hmm. but i always got the feeling that dark side was fluid mm-hmm and that Darkseid was an idea and a concept. Right. As opposed to an actual person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. Dark Darkseid is an avatar of... Not even anti-life, because that's what he's looking for. But Darkseid is essentially everything wrong. Right. In exactly. this, you know, in shape of a, a short purple guy in a dress. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it changes a bit depending on how you see him or what aspect he's supposed to represent but there is he is the he is sort of an the outsider i guess you know dark side is sort of the ultimate outsider and i think that that's um you know hey 
Graham, let me ask you something. This was something yes. where, remember when we were like, hey, so yeah, we haven't read comics and we have no idea what the fuck we're going to talk about. And I was like, I was going to hit you up with some, some like out of the blue comics questions. This oh, is something. Okay, cool. What are your top five or three or ten, however many come to mind, favorite comic book capes? Capes? Mm hmm. Like, uh, well, Super, Superman's my favorite cape. Right. Uh, Batman's a pretty great cape. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Shazam's cape, Captain Marvel's cape is fucking awesome. Oh, int- you know, it really is an amazing cape, isn't it? And it's also fascinating to me that it's one of the few capes that actually, sort of the same way, it's like the Days of Future Past of capes. You know what I mean? Like, the same way that Days of Future Past was such an amazing story, you eventually saw it done as an episode of Heroes, like, years later. <laughs> That's how good a story it was. That that Captain Marvel's cape was so good um, that it basically influenced Elvis's, you know, jumpsuit. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, but the Captain Marvel design is the original one is just spectacular. It really is. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's one of those things that is actually, um, like when you always hear about this, you know, the, the, the lawsuit that they want, they lost where it was like, yes, he's clearly a derivative creation of Superman. It's like, can you look at this character? I mean, look at this character. No, but like, bear in mind, back then, you probably could make the case of he's this guy who can do amazing things and he's in a cave. Everyone was a derivative character in that case. Like, they should have just given every character that was not, like, a spy every smasher or a magician. Successful. No, I know, but that's the thing that's just heartbreaking. Because now I think, you know, you can't... The, oh, the now, now I think you couldn't out. make that case. No, 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 not at all. Like, the law has changed so considerably. But at the time, like, I just remember, like, sure, there's things like law and precedent and, I don't know, whatever, you know, judge buying or <laughs> whatever. Whatever. I'm the, what am I, a lawyer? Clearly not. But <laughs> for myself, being just like, are you guys blind? Like, just to me, there's, like, at every step of the way, you know. Um, and he is. I think. I think Captain Marvel may be one of the best pure superhero designs you know yeah it's, it's just a spectacular outfit it's a yeah. spectacular design um other capes other cape my mind's kind of going blind for me not that the cape is exceptional in any way but i love dr doom's cape dr doom in a cape is fucking phenomenal dr doom's cape if he's drawn kirby-esque where it for some reason goes up at his shoulders and then back down yeah like it's almost like more of a cloak you know yeah. sort of thing yeah when yeah. it's that thing complete with the the hood uh a... Oh, yeah, if you're bringing the hood in, then also um, Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Doctor Strange is a great cape. And in fact, I was, you know, you're right. That might even be a better cape than one of my picks, which is, I love the Visions cape, you know? Like, that's, really? yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. but be- Because it... of, the, because of the, the collar? Yes, well, yes, actually a number of things. One, it's the color. Like, it's an all-yellow cape, which is weird. Secondly... Marvel superheroes, as a general rule of thumb, are not not caped. You know, there's just not that many capes across the you know, and especially, you know, Vision. God help him, was at best probably a very popular B-list character that is now hovering around the D-list or something. But back how in could the... you say that he's the center of their <laughs> big fuck off crossover, Jeff? <laughs> this... He's clearly the most important character in the Marvel <laughs> universe right now. He's the one who brought it all on through time travel vision. <laughs> 
Oh, Vision. I actually really like the Vision. And he's really been shot on. He really has, and it's a shame, because he's an awesome character. I thought it was great that they had, you know, that, that Roy Thomas was savvy enough to basically make a Mr. Spock character in the Marvel Universe. It just struck me as such a smart maneuver, like kind of realizing how close Mr. Spock was to that sort of Marvel Universe level of emotional angst. But but also, all of his weird ties to history, and also his look. Like, when he's being drawn, you know, sort of classic style, I think he's fucking phenomenal, including the fact of that one Avengers annual where he would, like, shove his cape into people, like, when it was immaterial, and then materialize it. Like, I think he did that to defeat one of the Kang bots in Avengers Annual 2 or whatever, and I remember thinking that was so awesome, because also when he took off his cape, he looked kind of rad, you know? So, yeah, the Vision's cape I thought was great, Dr. Dune's cape uh, I thought was fantastic, God, I know I had some, well, Superman's cape, Batman's cape, the thing that's a goddamn shame is that it it ends up being like the most boring comic book of all time and so therefore the idea of me saying this aloud was going to make you laugh at me but Todd McFarlane's spawn cape I thought was kind of a cool idea back in the first dozen well, it, it was a very arresting visual which mm-hmm. is probably as far as he got well, he you know, a... he's like, it's 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 a great cape. It looks great. The end, and it, on that level, it definitely works. Well, but the the his outfit is is like a symbiotic parasite demon host thing or whatever. Like it's not, it's it's actually alive. You mean you mean the concept of the cape as opposed to just the visual? No, no, the visual looks great. But see, here's the thing: it's like there's the visual of the cape, and then I actually like it when there's an extra thing to the cape. Like, Superman's cape being indestructible is kind of awesome. And the fact that the Vision can turn his cape immaterial is kind of great. And the fact that Spawn's cape is, not only is it a great visual, but after a while it begins moving, or you realize it's always moving, because it's alive, essentially, is like, I'm like, God, you know, it kills me that the guy, that Todd McFarlane is a guy who basically likes everything that I like and managed to turn it into the shittiest possible version so that it's almost hard for me to like the things I originally liked. Oh, Jeff, let your freak flag fly. <laughs> that is a Seriously. very hard thing to say on a headset, it, isn't it? It really is, by the way. Um, <laughs> here's a question for you about Spawn. Mm-hmm. This has always bothered me. Mm-hmm. Spawn, to you, is he Spider-Man meets Doctor Strange, visually? Because mm. that's always... What I've thought, like with with some death metal for the added chains, right, right. But in general, is it not like Spider Man's head on Doctor Strange's like cape and cowl? It's interesting. That's actually a really good. Like I always thought he was this weird nineteen nineties did go update. No, he's well. See, this is the thing that I find interesting about McFarlane is he knew his Ditko, and in fact. One of the things that kind of I, I'm convinced is that he half came to his Ditko through Starlin, because Starlin is such a weird influence on Spawn, which is part of why it drives me crazy that the book is so fucking bad. Um, but, I, I, he, you know, it's funny. I always went with a more superficial kind of like, he's Spider-Man crossed with Batman crossed with Death Metal, you know? And, but the but you're right, the cape is much more ditko e and... Well, and the other thing that I think is interesting is, is despite the fact that he 
has all of his derivative designs, he was obsessed with that. McFarlane was obsessed with that sort of Ditko Ditkum Dictum Ditko Dictum. That's far harder to say. I know. I should have gone with the freak flag fly. Uh, That the the character be recognizable almost, you know, like... Silhouette. Yeah, silhouette or even just by his color scheme. Well, I mean, McFarlane had a really strong Ditko influence. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. look at his Spider-Man. Yes. That's that's Ditko-y in a way that no Spider-Man artist since Ditko had done it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, exactly. He, I mean, and there was sort of that he managed to update Ditko and then merge it to a sort of updated Romita. And it, 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 you know, it flew. It really did. It was a weird combination, but it really flew, at least, at least while there was someone else that he had to sort that kept pushing him, I think. You know what I mean? So, because McFarlane really was for a guy who who fought so hard for for his own creative control, it was clear that it had as much to do with being able to control, you know, double his like in Marvel Comics the Untold Story or whatever, being able to double his page rate, um, and and control how many pinup shots he got to do an issue. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like it really. There's no when when he gets his own control, it things turn so lazy. And it's kind of a shame. It is really because he is like those those chops. And again, I just when I look at the stuff with Spawn, um, you know, there's that weird cosmic stuff, and there's all this brooding Marvel stuff, uh, you know. And then there's so you know, apart from <laughs> being boring and populating it with people who will sue him, McFarlane really doesn't have any other innovations on his own as a writer, you know? It, here's a question then. Mm-hmm. Is it is it genuinely a missed opportunity that McFarlane and other original image creators did not work with writers? Like, if, if McFarlane had gone, I'm doing Spawn, it's my creation, and I'm going to be co-plotting with, you know, whoever. Right. Who will be scripting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that level of input would have allowed McFarlane to have had enough control to be happy but also allowed a writer to have enough input for the books to be readable? I don't know. I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, the one thing that I find fascinating is is that McFarlane, for a variety of, variety of reasons, I think, ended up, you know, paying for art- writers huge amounts of money for that four-issue thing where... that from which, you know, Angela and Medieval Spawn came out of, you know, it's like he paid money to Alan Moore and to Gaiman and to Sim and wasn't there a fourth? Who am I forgetting? There, I, there was a fourth that never, I, I want to say Miller was announced and then it never happened. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, oh, no, wait, actually it may have happened and that was even dumber than we remember. That could be, I mean, apart from the Batman Spawn thing, which was something altogether. I don't, I don't think it happened. I want to say, let's see. Frank Miller and Todd McFarlane, I'm looking up. No, I'm only getting Spawn Batman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Because um, I want to say that that's, those were the issues of Spawn that ended up coming out a year after the other issues, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you not remember there was issues that were uh, solicited and then didn't come out? Yes. 
and then they came out like it was issues 13 and 14 and they came out like after issue 20 or something like that you know I could have sworn it was a little later than that and might it might be been... it, might, it might have been like 20 and 21 and then it came out yeah and I thought yeah. those were around the time of those Grant Morrison issues remember Grant Morrison came in and wrote issues around like yeah. 15 and 16 and yeah I, I, remember, I, I remember when uh, those issues were announced I was like I'm a big Grant Morrison fan mm-hmm. should I read those Spawn issues like <laughs> I, I'd had it because I, I tried I I'd read the Sim and the Moore and the gaming issues of Spawn right. at that point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Right. And I was like, but I love Morrison. Mm-hmm. But I love Morrison. And I I might be wrong, but I want to say that was close enough to when he was doing Invisibles as well, when Invisibles was Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was an up-and-coming name, so I think either he would... I mean, it was like big enough that I was like, oh my god, he's doing those, but, but also not in a he wasn't as big as Moore or anything like that. So, yeah, it might have been Invisibles was just starting out or something like that. But um, I think he wrapped... But I, I, I remember being like, should, should I read? Should I read? This... In, okay, here's a complete randomness, but I, I thought of this earlier on this week and remembered that I wanted to tell you. There's a... The Nerdist Writers podcast mm-hmm. that I listen to, they always have this question of, do you remember when you realized that people actually wrote these things that you watched? Ah... Uh. Okay, and I've, every time he asks that, I remember this thing about comics, which is, I remember before Animal Man came out, mm-hmm. when Animal Man was being advertised, which has got to be 87 or 88, mm-hmm. so I am, I'm 13. Wow. Yeah, I'm 12 or 13. Seeing the comic solicited, seeing Graham Morrison's name, and thinking, that's weird, there's an American writer who's got the same name as the guy who writes Zenith. <laughs> And it was only after Animal Man started, I want to say maybe issue two, Mm -hmm. that I was like, holy shit, you can be British and write for American comics. (laughs) I remember this moment of epiphany. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) That's great. That's really funny. It's so funny because I had this weird, like, I would be hard-pressed to answer that sort of you know like it's really hard question because it's I can't remember like a moment of oh someone writes this because I guess I always knew that someone wrote it yeah I kind of feel that way too I mean although it's for me as a Marvel fan the question might be when did you first realize that just because every comic book had Stan Lee on it it was not written by Stan Lee so <laughs> um, sense. yeah dude and speaking of which I don't suppose you've heard of oh my god I think no wonder why this is why I tried looking this up and I couldn't find it. Um, have you, you, you know? Did you know about the 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 manga thing that Stan Lee like collaborated on um, that was published by Viz Media? But it, oh, but this it's horribly, horribly familiar. But I could, honestly don't know the details. Oh my god! I have to. I I heard somebody bitching about this on, and I had to pick it up, and it's amazing. It's called Ultimo, or ultimately, or possibly. Karakudohi Ultimo, which is uh, or no, it'd be Ridoji, but I couldn't say that again. Anyway, if I'm understanding correctly from the the back pages of this thing, and it's uh, this Ultimo Volume One, which I checked out from the library, has an original concept by Stan Lee, and then story and art by Hiroyuki Takai, uh, and it was published in Shonen Jump. Uh, 79 through 82 back when that was a magazine thing and is copyrighted. The first printing on this is February 2010. Oh, it's actually is called 
Karakuri Doji Ultimo, and the the copyright on it is 2008. It is like you're like okay Stanley doing manga. The one thing that I'm really impressed with is that a <laughs> Sandy uh, knows manga exists. He, exactly. In the interview pages in the back. Okay, so let me tell you about this story, Graham. It starts off, as all Stanley's stories do, back in 12th century in Kyoto, Japan, uh, with a, a strange, mysterious figure whose name is Dunstan, who is basically the spinning Im- image of Stan Lee, who, before he can get robbed by bandits, the bandits pull open the boxes marked Ultimo and Vice. These are what Dunstan, the Stanley analog, has built with his own genius. The ultimate mechanical boys. They are equal to each other. Nothing like them has existed before. So... Wait, this sounds awesome. Yeah, it it would be awesome if it wasn't kind of insane. I mean, don't get me wrong. The thing of having Stan Lee basically walk around in like a a spider yukata, you know, the Japanese rope with like a big spider on the back, is kind of insane. And the fact that they draw him in his sunglasses and mustache, like telling everybody, like, I've created the ultimate works of good and evil. In, in 12th century Japan? In 12th century Japan, yes. With the sunglasses. With the sunglasses, yeah. Oh there's... my god, that's, that, that is spectacular. I'm sorry, Jeff, you're wrong. This, this is a great comic. Well, see, I, I read it and was like, holy shit, because... Um, so what ends up happening is one of the bandits is actually a conflicted guy who is, the, he is a, what did they call it? They're like toll bandits or something like that. They actually rob people. Um, oh man, he's it, supposed to be a, an actual figure in duty bandits. Uh, duty they, bandits. Duty I bandits. Spell that. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, wait. They, they, they rob people of duty. See, it's even uh, better. Okay, the thing for me, Graham, is is yet again, you know me, I always get confused when transvestitism and robots are con- mixed up freely. No, no, Jeff, you always get excited when transvestitism Okay, if there's one thing that I think you know about me, Graham, I use the word confused when I mean excited. So, that's the thing like, that's... I like that is true. <laughs> So the thing that's actually really annoying is is that these are supposedly mechanical boys, and yet I'm I will bet you anything that this is like rewritten Moe because Stanley has created these two very effeminate looking boys, one of which has like a a tank top that's tied on and and boobs like both the boys good what? and evil they have cleavage not big cleavage. But like, do you know? Do you know what Moe? Noticeable cleavage. Do you know what Moe is? Do you no. Know? Okay, this is going to be a laugh for I, everyone. I I do not read your deviant manga, Jeff. <laughs> well, okay, so this is actually going to be a laugh for those people who listen to uh, our podcast who actually know what manga is, because it's it's this little <laughs> segment that, that is that is called Jeff misexplains uh, manga. But my understanding is. Moe is this uh, style of manga that is basically centered around uh, young female characters, and the male character is usually an older figure who ends up bonding to the female figure. Like, you you saw The Professional, right? Didn't you? Um, 
Oh no, wait, yes. Sorry, for some reason I thought you were talking about the professionals. I thought you were, no. I thought someone had remade the professionals. Never mind. No, 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 no. No, the professional, also known as Leon, Jean yeah, Reno, yeah, and Natalie yeah, Portman, yeah, yeah. that is sort of a classic kind of proto Moe story. He's like an older killer, she's like a young girl that he ends up taking up uh, you know, caring for. And so the the Moe thing has usually an older mentor, younger girl. The younger, in some cases, the younger girl is like a sick girl who's like dying or has only a certain amount of time to live. Or in other cases, they're possessed of like absolutely unbelievable superpowers, but they're also fragile and don't know what the world is. And so it's a very strange, like it seems kind of pedo-ish because of the close relationship. Kind of? Well, because it's not it, you know, because it's Japan, Graham. If they wanted to go full on pedo, they that's would go. That's true. They would. Yeah, they, they just would. Yes. So, so there's a lot of weird, like, there's a lot of tender feelings that are that are sort of just kind of right, vaguely on the edge of being sexualized, but aren't. Again, it's a lot like Leon the Professional is, I think, the best. My experience with it came from watching the first season of Gunslinger Girl, which struck me as, like, one of the best ideas ever and one of the worst executions ever, which is about, like, um, you know, 11-year-old, 12-year-old girls who are trained to become assassin killing machines, basically prepubescent uh, femme Nikitas who have, like, oh, and La Femme Nikita, also kind of a perfect Moe segment if Nikita was actually, again, like 11 or 12 or a teenage girl. There's some weird fatherhood stuff going in along with a lot of like, well, let's see people kill and die, but let's also treat them tenderly, right? So I'm pretty convinced that uh, Kara Hukore, I'm not even saying it right, Ultimo, because everyone else just calls it Ultimo, that these are actually female characters with prepubescent uh, breasts and actually weird low hanging uh, low hanging harem pants, so that you can see like their little hip bones going down in the little disturbing V thing. Except these were created by, you know, 12th century Kyoto Japan Stan Lee analog as quote unquote boys who are to be the ultimate example of good and evil. And the idea I, I, lo- I love that you actually say that as if 12th century Stan Lee analog is real. These were created by Dosetri Stanley Analog and not modern day Stanley. And, or let's face it, modern day Stanley who wrote one line of an idea and developed by the actual artist and writer. Exactly. And in the back, because there's an interview where the two of them talk with each other, where uh, Hiroyuki Takai says, How did you come up with the ideas for Ultimo? And Stanley gives a refreshingly candid answer for Stanley I don't know. <laughs> I, I was trying <laughs> Does he to actually say that. Yeah, he does. That's his first sentence. That's be... Absolutely hilarious. I don't know. You got me. <laughs> they said we need an idea, yeah. and we're willing to pay real money for it. And I said, okay, let me think of something. I was and trying just... to. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> and I just yeah. did one of those things where it's you know, do you remember... oh, God, I can't remember what they're called. They were like paper. It was like origami that you chose one side and it was a number and you did one, two, three, oh, four. Oh, yeah. Three. What are those yeah. damn things called? I love I those. Yeah, exactly. But um, that's how Stanley comes up with all these ideas now. You yeah. go four and he goes one, two, three, four. Okay, spider powers. Yeah. And then you go S-P-I-D-E-R. Female Moe robot. You know, okay. R-O-B-O-T. And I refer to him as a guy. Okay. 
I was trying to do something that would be good for the Japanese audience as well as an American audience. There aren't too many robots here in America. I didn't know if they had a good robot fighting the bad ones in Japan, and I thought maybe this idea would be good for both countries. Oh my god, that's everything about that is spectacular. You're selling me on this, Jeff. It has to be said. Go go to the library, Graham. You will not. Well, it's it's a shame because I really sped through. I I don't think that uh, bless his heart, uh, Hiroyuki Takai is exactly my my cup of miso. Um, his style is like way too. Particularly the fight scenes are just kind of. In some ways, like really horrible Todd, Todd McFarlane, like lots of like jagged angles of things, like you really can't see necessarily what's happening, like per se, like the the design of the characters. And I guess this is anti McFarlane, but dude, you have to check it out because again, I know I was confused with Hikaru no Go with the dude that I was sure was a woman, but actually was not. But these characters are actually young girls that are referred to as boys, and there's even a scene where so you got to trust me don't i can't explain how but we cut to the 20th century and what happens is is that this um young high school kid has found ultimo in a in in an antique store and has bonded with it because i guess i am explaining it all because ultimo remembers who this kid was in his previous life in his previous life he was the duty bandit that um that ultimo bonded himself to uh, in order to learn about good and evil. And so consequently, you get these amazing sequences which have the high school student in his underwear um, jumping on top of the character in his bed and having a woman character walk in on the two of them, you know, as you do in manga. Um, And other scenes where he's like, uh, you know, bent over in the shower um, thinking about like what what he needs to do in order to you know be a good person when he gets walked in on by the you know boy robot with the cleavage it's a I, big I, bag I, of weird I'm just imagining Stanley reading this yes it, he probably didn't see that's the thing I can't imagine him reading it much less writing it but the best part is, I can totally imagine him reading it if he read it and just being like, I don't get it, true believer, but that must be what those Japan people like. It, totally. <laughs> the Japan people. <laughs> you are too funny. Well, the thing that I do love is, is like, so th- this article, let me just read a couple of the other highlights. What made you want to collaborate with a Japanese manga and comic artist? I love Japanese manga, and I know how popular it is, certainly in Japan, but even in America. <laughs> Uh, let's see, where's another great one? Um, the thing that I was actually really, that I thought was great is is that uh, he, he didn't understand the storyboard layouts. You know, it's like, uh-huh. and he's like, it's hard for me to understand them because storyboards in America look a little different. They're tighter and they're more complete. Japanese layouts are very rough, so it's going to take me a while to get used to looking at that type of storyboard. Of course, I need English to understand what I'm looking at. It's a little hard to tell because I don't read Japanese as well as I used to. And uh, I couldn't read Japanese as well as I used to. Yeah, yeah, actually, I think that's the Stanley Wit going on. But 
But he actually is like, because they point out the fact it's like, well, that's what we have to do to produce 19 pages a week. And Stan Lee's like, that's a tremendous amount. I mean, when I was doing comic books years ago, our books were originally 64 pages in the 1930s. Then they got whittled down to 48 pages. And finally, by the 60s, they were only 32 pages. Now, the 32 pages, eight or so were ads. They ended up being 20 or 22 pages of actual comics. And we had to do that in a month. For you people to do all of this in one week, I think that is absolutely amazing. And to have it turn out as good as it does, I think you're all geniuses. And and the cre- there, uh, there's so much to love about that. It really is great. <laughs> isn't it? To turn out as good as it is, that's great. That's a plus. Yeah, exactly. For, for you to do 90 pages a week, and for it to be good, oh man. Yeah, that's, I would have just been happy. To it would have been absolute pages. shit if we had to do 19 pages a week. The fact that it's just crap is. And so uh, Haruki Takai says everyone does it in Japan. And Stan Lee says, no wonder you always look so tired. I'm like. Japanese people? This oh artist? Like, oh my god, this is so funny. How is that? Oh my god, I'm, I'm appalled by that. Yeah, I know, I oh, know. That makes me so happy. Here's a question. Yes. Um, When he's talking about 19 pages a week, didn't Jack Kirby do that when he was doing like five books at once? Yeah, he was. He was, exactly. But Stanley is kind of like, uh, may not be, this memory may not be so sharp when it comes to Jack. So, which is why it's kind of funny, like reading the story, which has the ultimate robot, it's good, and then the ultimate evil robot. Like, the evil robot, the good robot ends up uh, bonding itself to this high schooler who I think I told you is like a good guy and wants to, like, has a girl that, you know, he wants to impress that, that he's a, you know, that he's in love oh, with yeah. and has been forever. The bad guy, and this is great, the bad guy that the evil robot ponds himself to is unemployed. And I just love the idea that that <laughs> might have been an innovation from Stan himself. You know? Oh, just like, God, I love that. Yeah. So, seriously, uh, true believers, if you're, if you're fascinated seeing what happens when a man in his 80s slaps his name <laughs> on the product from a different culture... Oh. But say what you like, Jeff. It sounds a lot better than just imagine Stanley inventing the DC universe. Oh, it's true because they didn't let him anywhere near it apart from just the initial thing. And they made him. They he's he's seen him with his sunglasses and his his uh, mustache and smirking and being the mastermind behind all these robots and the master plan of of seeding them through time. Apparently, oh lord. So yeah, it it is actually much better than I what I remember from the just imagine stuff. Um, although interestingly enough, I think you and I have talked about this. Some of the stuff that Stanley did for the Marvel books, I want, remember when he was jumping in and doing those backup stories or whatever. In... Oh yeah, like they were they were surprisingly um, not terrible. That's were... that's, mm-hmm. that's totally backhanded compliment. Yeah. They were good in a really weird way. Mm-hmm. They were good in a sort of I don't know if I should be laughing at or with. Wait. Do you not think? Well, you know, the thing that I thought was interesting about them was before it became apparent that they were essentially all the same story, just done with him in a different character, um, was the idea that Stan's comic, that, that they didn't actually read, like, Stan Lee trying to write, like, the Stan Lee of old, for the most part. Oh, no, no, for the most part, it was, like, Stan Lee 
I don't know. I, uh, I, I'm tempted to say like the real Stanley, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I don't think there is a real Stanley. Right. But they they seemed more honest in a weird way. They seemed, oh, that's not true. They seemed much more self-aware of the reality of Marvel, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, the reality of Marvel and that those characters were kind of, I guess, fixed in time in a way, but also that, weirdly enough, that Stan himself was not. Like, I really had the moment while reading those things of like, oh, you know what, Stanley, by virtue of clearly not being a guy who reads comic books, has a fresher voice than uh, a lot of other comic book writers that you come across. Like, I was kind of like, I'd almost really like to see this guy, like, tell a comic, you know, like, write a comic book. The problem is, is that he would instantly bring all of his Stan Lee-isms into it, or he would just do, like, his character creation talents or nothing. But in terms of having, like, dialogue with some of the characters, it it was kind of refreshing. Like, didn't he do that, like, Spider-Man annual... He did, well, he did. He's done. I want to say at least two Spider-Man stories, but he's had a Fantastic Four story as well. And it's mm-hmm. it's the plot now. Generally, Stanley meets his creation, and is boggled by his creation's life. Those were the ones when he was doing the Marvel thing, certainly. But I could have sworn that he did like a Spider-Man annual that might have been just like Spider-Man fighting the Scorpion or something like that, and and it felt surprisingly refreshing. You know, I could have sworn it was from the 80s or the 90s or something like that. And that's, I'll, that's very possible. I'll, I'll never find it, but I remember being kind of struck by this idea of like, oh, you know what, Stanley could actually have some... <laughs> that guy could actually be a right comic book writer yeah, if he put his Stanley mind to it. Stanley might have a future in this field. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and on that note, I mm-hmm. think it's time to take a break because you're beginning to break up a little bit. Oh, geez, I was going to say, is I, I was hoping we were going to get lucky because you sounded... Perfect all the way through. All right, so you're beginning to go. So I mean, let's just jump for a second and then jump back up. Well, I'm going to do the full reboot if you don't mind. So give. give Oh, do the full reboot. Why don't you? Why don't I? I'll come back and I'll be like a different Jeff altogether. And I'll be back, and I too will have reincarnated into David Tennant. So (laughs) I hope you'll all be very happy with that, listeners. Talk to you in a second. Kate certainly will. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note. back indeed we are indeed we with, are with jeff lester host and writer <laughs> for i love jim starlin but even i won't read Stormwatch. it's you know uh, it, it which i have to admit the editors changed from my original working title which was i love jim starlin but even i won't read Stormwatch unless he was both writing it and drawing it which he's really if he was drawing it you'd read it oh totally in fact, oh, Jeff, yeah. no. I, all I'm going to say is go to the store, look at his cover for issue 19, and then tell me that. No, I, I have, Graham. Believe me. I looked at that cover, and I'm like, I like that. It's weird. And actually, the thing that's apart from that weird series where he was trying to do um, basically Captain Marvel or something, it, it, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll have to edit out that weird Frank-like 
<laughs> kind of moment there. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Um, I, I kind of wish you would leave that in. Apart from the moment where he strikes to Captain Marvel, <laughs> I know it was bad. I'm like, what the hell happened to me? It was it was something where I believe Captain I was Marvel, hot cha That my my body was literally not was trying to shut down rather than express what I was going to say, which was that. That's work that I don't like very much. But I'm I'm kind of surprised. Like, Starlin is one of those dudes where the stuff that he was drawing for, like, Marvel The End or whatever, I was like, it still looked like... It still looked like stuff of his that I quote-unquote liked. You know what I mean? Like, his work I still looked... really interesting because Starlin's art for me has atrophied far much more than Burns. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the thing that's really weird, is is that it may just be that there was that much less Starlin for me to actually look at over the decades, as opposed to all the burn stuff. Um, and, and I can just tell that me saying that is going to get me hate me again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so, because I, I think, you know, it really... I, I... I don't know. I remember someone in the comments was really upset that I was like, I'm surprised that Paul and Midnight are still together in Star Wars. And they're like, what are you saying about homophobia? Which wasn't what I was meaning to say at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that really did kind of come across kind of uh, interestingly. Because that is how I, I thought that you meant it as well. So. No, I, I was just like, he's changing everything else. Right. Like, he's changing it. The right. one everything recognizable thing of the characters he, yeah. I thought he was going to change. But never mind. I'll also be honest, Graham. I, to be fair, the other part was I read the three preview pages on Comixology, I think. Oh, is, um, it, is it the first three pages? Is it the page where they've got, like, the godlike characters? And yes. they're like, the, fuck this shit. Yes, basically. Over. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay, that page is fine. But then the next couple of pages where they're like, you will be eradicated, and some guy's like, no! I was just like, wow, this is really bad. Like, I think there might have been a thing where, I don't remember if we were talking about it last week. I, it was something I meant to bring up, but... I think I started to bring up the idea that there's sort of a a connective tissue sort of to to writers and artists like things that keep a through line that's in their work that seems to disappear as they get older so you've got all the all the work that's Claremont is Claremont or all the work that's burn is burn but there's like the extra little degree of nuance that was there that you're almost you almost think you're mistaken. Like, like, oh, there's that extra element that's there, this underlying current of some extra bit that just seems to fall away, you know, and suddenly they're old and they're producing their work and it's identifiably them. It's even, in theory, their greatest hits and stuff that you dig, but there's some weird emptiness underneath it. Do you know what I mean? Or no, I, just... I totally know what I mean. I mm-hmm. think... Uh, I, I'm always tempted to say, like, it's because the need to impress is not there mm-hmm. or maybe that it's changed right um but yeah no, i know i totally know what you mean that you can read stuff and it is even when it's technically as good as the earlier stuff mm-hmm. there's something missing mm-hmm. and it's something tangible you're you really have a moment of yeah it's not the same mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it and it's fascinating to me that you can actually have a checklist of everything that you like about a creator, and you go back and you look at that checklist of them at 50 or 55 or 60 or even 40 or whatever, and all those things are there, and yet there's still some extra thing that's missing, and you're like, ah, I just, it doesn't, 
it doesn't it just doesn't jibe with me and it could be of course that people and i think you're the a big proponent of that well you know you grow up you don't have the same interests or suddenly it just seems sort of you know that the work doesn't hold up but i kind of feel like for myself and again could be mistaken that yeah there's some element and like you said it could be that part of that 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 they no once they no longer have anything to prove that there's no little anxiety or undercurrent or tension to it all of a sudden and it just however you read that as an observer it just reads far flatter you know here's a question mm -hmm. do you think they know too much i mean is is it because there's not as much process of discovering what you can do well, yes and no. I mean, I think there's still a lot of guys who... I mean, this is hard because as somebody who likes art but it is not schooled in it, um, you know, there's definitely artists can sit and say, well, I've, you know, my work has continued to grow. You know, I'm sure someone like, for example, Byrne could be like, you know, I'm rendering things entirely differently than I did 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I think... I think it's... I think there might be something to the idea of like people have the ambition it's just I think my worry is is that you know as you get older and you are sort of not necessarily the best judge of your own work anyway I, I don't know I'm not sure what it is I really wish that I knew do you think that's what it is I should turn to this around. I, I, I really don't know I, I think it's a possibility mm. I think there is a uh... Or maybe it's uh, maybe it's thinking you know enough, mm -hmm. and so you experiment less. Right. I think there's definitely a playfulness in a lot of people's careers. And a lot. Mm -hmm. of, that's not true. I'll try it again. A lot of people's work early in their careers, mm -hmm. uh, which is very much of the. I could probably do this, or maybe I can do this. Let me try. Right. And then as they get older, and especially as they get more successful, mm -hmm. they get far more conservative with what they'll do. Mm. Because it's like, well, I know this sells. I know this works. I know that I know this is what people want. Um, I was thinking about that today because a lot of people have said have been doing like Happy Birthday Superman, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people have been sharing Frank Miller's cover to Superman Four Hundred, which he painted. Mm. And I just don't think about Frank Miller painting. I mean, mm -hmm. I I just don't. That mm -hmm. like painting for me is not a Frank Miller skill set. And so seeing that cover. I was kind of like, that's really unusual. Mm -hmm. Frank Miller painted. Right. And then I sort of realized, I guess he stopped because that wasn't what people wanted to see from him. Mm. Well, like you said, it could be that he realizes that it's not his strength. You know, like he just never... There are those people who, you know, are like decent at one thing and realize that they just that it take too much time for them to really be good at it at a level that they want. And so they kind of abandon it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, certainly Miller is one of those guys who had in Lynn Varley, I think, a far superior colorist than he could ever hope to be. And I think he was really aware of that. So, you know, you see that. But, you know, there, there, I feel like he has a, it's interesting you mentioned, I sort of feel like his approach to color in Electra Lives Again or some of the stuff that happens in Sin City almost feels kind of painterly to me, you know? Mm hmm. But although I could be fooling myself, um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if it's just like when you're younger, your time is literally worth less. You know, you just are 
when an artist is younger, like they're still learning how to do things maybe, but the idea of them kind of, kind of like with Stan Lee being just shocked over the idea that these guys are turning out 19 pages a week, you know, is that, that you're, that's kind of what you have to do. And when you're young, you're just slaving over this stuff. You're probably broke. So there's nothing else to do, you know? Um, and then as you get older, like you have far more demands on your time. If you're lucky, you end up, you know, having a family or a, a you know, romantic companion or a spouse or something. Um, but it just suddenly the days are just that much more full. And if you're successful, I mean, you know, suddenly you're riding on jets, you know, um, which Lord knows Claremont seems to like hold the Guinness book world record for most comic books written on, you know, airplanes. Um, and I, I just, I think that that, that, that lack of time, like if nothing else between the combination of time and your brain being younger and faster, you learn more and you can change more and you're so much more fluid. And then as you get older, you just kind of get set in your ways and little I don't know. I don't know what it is. At a certain point, maybe it is that just that questing nature sort of drops out from you, you know, and then you're not, you know, unless you're absolutely completely devoted to your craft. I don't know. I'm not sure. I. It really feels like we should sit down and have a list of like guys who did great work as, you know, despite their age or as they got older who really hit second renaissances I mean I, I'm not sure about second renaissance but I always think about um, Joe Kubert as like the guy who never got shit right right yeah although but I agree and yet what's fascinating is I'm not really sure that he ever changed changed yeah, yeah exactly. kind of like it's his sweet spot mm-hmm. you know 50 years before he died right but even then, like, I think about the... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it. The graphic novel he did for Vertigo uh, about wartime. Uh, yeah, Bosnia? or No, uh, no, uh, Dong Zoi or something, I think it was called. Oh, okay, right. Because he did um, a Oh, he did, he did a few, yeah. yeah. Um, but the art in that, I remember being like, oh, that's unusual. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's essentially... Um, it's essentially pencil and whiteout. Wow. Interesting, you know, and that sort of thing is is not what you'd expect from him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You no, know? and so I guess he he did to a small extent keep experimenting. Sure, sure, yeah. But no, I, I, if the question is, you know, who continued to change and get better? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and I think the answer is like for us anyway. For me, I'm of course going to say Kirby because of course Kirby. But. Uh, Yes and no, because there was a. I think there was a point where you can actually see Kirby. Kirby get old. Sure, but by that point, he's really fucking old. He's been in the industry like fifty years at that point. You know. Yes. So I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is is like for most people, you're lucky to see them have like that. But like you know, his reinvention of himself and his art in the '60s is after he's already had a huge career in comics. So, I mean, you do see him get old, but not before, like, really, it, there, it's, 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 that, that old Kirby that we see is the stuff that in a way you sort of would have expected to have seen, like, by 65 or 66, not to continue to have him, like, fight that off to varying you mean, degrees. You mean 1965 or 66, or 
when he was 65 no, years no, old. No, no, sorry. In in the years 1965 to 1966. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, old Kirby came realistically like 20 years later than it should have, quote-unquote. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, yeah, no, I, it's true. I was I was just thinking in terms of like which artists have not had a moment where you're just like, oh... <laughs> Well, oh, I, I, yeah. although, but no, but when I see like Silver Star, mm-hmm. yeah, no, great, or, or, or later work, there right. it, there is a moment of this is great because it's Kirby, but it's it's lesser Kirby. Yeah, no, it's lesser Kirby. No, right. and there, there is a, a moment of oh, you know, just feeling sad almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Eddie but Campbell, Eddie Campbell is going to be who I'm going to throw out in there. Mm, interesting. I. Hmm. Fascinating with his like later period being this sort of recent period of stuff work that he's yeah done. With, with the stuff where he's clearly going much more digital right uh, he's going into humanity he's he's yeah I I think yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm I I'm throwing Eddie Campbell out there that's interesting I am holding off because uh, I I see your point and I was actually really excited by the work that he ended up doing in the filthy lovely stuff that it was like really reading that on a on a digital tablet was bracing you know um so yeah i could see that i just think that it's maybe a little too early to see or to tell i mean and of course i mean campbell's someone who has such a huge body of amazing work behind him too Mm -hmm. so i don't know interesting um but yeah, I think he he actually is super sharp. Gil Kane is a dude who always seemed sharp all you know, pretty sharp all the way through. There was like a little bit of deterioration I felt like toward the end maybe, but he almost covered it by you could get an inker who knew his work well enough, you know. Because I'm like thinking of like that whole they call him Kane story from the uh, from that one image comic that Moore wrote, you know, which yeah, was so yeah. great. Um, and I really feel like that ended up looking like almost more Gil Kane than Gil Kane because of whoever he had inking him. Um, but some of the other stuff he did leading up to that actually looked pretty strong too. John Severin, John Severin's a guy who like actually now that I think about it, like now now you see some of his stuff looking a little shakier. But when you look at the stuff that he was doing in the Two Gun Kids, say you know back in two thousand. 2003 or whatever that work looked phenomenal you know and and just as sharp I think and as clean um, and John Severin is an old man he is right exactly actually he's not he died last year he was an old man <laughs> yeah, up until he died exactly um, but he, up until he was born in 1921 so yeah holy shit Holy shit. 21, really. So the idea yeah. that he was drawing as well as he was at 80, because, I mean, those pages look great. Yeah. Um, That's kind of, that's a stunner. That's kind of amazing, yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, so, Graham. Um, yeah, Jeff Lester, yes. Yeah, we've got about, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes. Uh, do, do you know what else uh, we should talk about? We had yeah, other I, things. I'm going to suggest we try and do the questions. What? The remaining question from December. Really? Okay, that's yeah, really. okay. All right, I, I'm I'm down with it. I'm down with it. Let Let's try. There's actually still a bunch. Let's try <laughs> to do it quickly and see how many we get through. Because every time we say that, we do like one. Right. It's true. <laughs> you doomed um, us. <laughs> December sixth. Mm-hmm. 
way back when, December 6th, Miguel Corti said, what current artists are the best at comic storytelling? I don't mean the best illustrators or the best frozen pose slash cover artists. I mean from panel to panel, who can carry the story, draw your eyes across the page, and not interfere with the story being told. It seems to me that comics are blessed with many a good illustrator, but there aren't that many competent cartoonists. Is this the fault of the artist or the writers who don't know how to script for them? Good question. Graham, why don't you answer first? Uh, well, I'm going to go with Darwin Cook. I'm going to go with uh, Marcus Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with Mark Buckingham who I think is actually a really good storyteller mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure other good storytellers will come to me the second I stop thinking about them um, I'm, I think it's the fault of the artist I, I don't think it's the fault of the writer I think you can blame many things for the writers and I think definitely there are writers who don't give their artists anything interesting to draw mm-hmm. but I also think that if you have artists oh Chris Samney, there you go oh. there's another one um I think if you give artists if, who want, who are really concentrating on storytelling and are really interested in that and are really good at it, mm-hmm. they can enliven the worst script mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and will and will find ways to do so because that is where their interest is. You know, let me ask something very quickly uh, because the, I did realize that we overlooked a little unofficial segment that Graham, I, Graham and I have been doing. Uh, for the podcast the last couple of months called This Week in Al Ewing. Um, and uh, This Week in <laughs> Al Ewing, uh, I actually wanted to ask Graham about... Is Last Week in Al Ewing, isn't it? Is Last Week in Al Ewing, yeah, yeah. Because Graham actually was good enough to get me that uh, digital code for the Avengers Assemble issue, uh, 14, the Age of Ultron crossover, which Graham was absolutely right, did everything that you would uh, want from you know, a disaster movie prelude that, that that sets the scene. Everything that Bendis didn't bother to do, well, did, chose to, to skip over. Um, Ewing does really well. Uh, but I don't know if you remember, Graham, but you know the very first page of the comic that's basically like, I've known a lot of cities, and it's basically the introduction to San Francisco? Yes, I love that page. Are you going to say something uh no wait Graham are you still there? Yes, sorry. And in, in leaning over to get that comic, <laughs> I managed to hit the mute button. Oh, thank God. Okay, I had what, that moment. What I before. said was, I love that page. Are you going to say something horrible about that page? I'm not. What I'm going to say is, if you want to look at that page, one of the things that struck me on it that I'm absurdly fascinated with as to whose artistic choice that it was, um, and maybe I'll screenshot this for you guys for the listeners uh, so you can check it out in the show notes. But it basically starts with a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge and a, a panel saying, I know a lot of cities. I've known a lot of cities. Um, do you notice, Graham, how that page goes essentially from left to right, and then for the second half, it goes from right to left? Yeah, well, if you look at the, if you look at the captions, it's a Z. Yeah, it's a Z. Which I love. I love that about that page. And I'm really impressed with it. Like, I really have that weird moment of, like, you know, I'm assuming that it's Ewing because I've seen him, like, spend a lot of, you know, seen a certain amount of time of him talking and thinking and writing about his, uh, about panel layouts. But I'm, I'm really impressed by how well it worked and how natural it was like i didn't it wasn't until the second time that i looked at it that i'm like oh my god he actually had my eye they led it from you know ag- against the left to right flow of the panels 
and it works because of the way that it's all laid out. And yeah, and paced. you don't notice it, and then you're like, wait, this is an entirely counterintuitive way of working, but it's an entirely, I'll try it again, entirely intuitive way of reading the page. Yes. Because that's how you read a page. Yes, exactly. The, the way that the panels and everything. So I was really uh, impressed with that. The, yes, the, I, I think I, I said this last week. I think the art is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that Tom Palmer should ink uh, Butch Guys a lot more mm-hmm. because I think the two of them are a spectacular combination. But yeah, I, I think Guys does some really really nice stuff with Leia in this issue. Right. Well, and this is my thing. Do you think it? Do you? Because I, I haven't followed his stuff through Winter Soldier. Do you think that that was? all guys or also partially Ewing or how do you think that that actually broke down for some reason I'm thinking it's probably guys just because he had his whole I am trying to be the ghost of Jim Steranko even though Jim Steranko is not dead thing for a while and he he (laughs) seemed really interested in be in page layout yes and in playing with the the way the eye goes across the page right Um, I don't know if that necessarily means that he is responsible for panel placement though Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could because you know you could look at that page and say, well, they could just put the panels in other pa- in a, uh, the captions in other panels, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it would read uh, differently. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'd be really curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really fascinated. Um, but yeah, for people, not that it's necessarily, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's somewhat related to Miguel's uh, question in that I was really stunned. Like I really had that moment of like wow, holy shit, whoever's telling this story is doing a phenomenal job in the storytelling of that issue. So, it really struck me. Um, I have to say, as long as I'll throw in someone else, uh, uh, Rick Burchett is somebody who, um, his one-shot for Batman, the Batgirl one-shot, Batgirl animated adventures, like a jumbo-sized where it's Batgirl versus, I want to say Harley Quinn, is drawn in the Batman animated series style and is some of the most amazing storytelling, like just from page to page, how they get there. Um, but the only thing I want to add to Miguel is my theory is is that the, the real fault has a lot to do with the deadlines. I honestly feel that one of the hardest things to do is to break a story from panel to panel, draw your eyes across the page, you know, and not interfere with the story being told. I think that's one of the first things that actually um, falls under the current super production deadline. Unless you've got someone who's an amazingly good storyteller who can lay things out. Um, and then usually, I don't think those guys are necessarily getting as much work because they've got an almost cartoonier look and flow to them, is what I'm going to say. Interesting. Yeah, it's my theory. Joel Greenlee on December 7th, 2012. Because, mm. yes, five months, people. Uh, I was wondering if you guys have read either of Harvey Picard's final books, Not the Israel My Parents Promised Me, or Harvey Picard's Cleveland. There's more, but I for me, the answer is no. So Yeah, and can I get some not non-Homer perspective from you guys on the books if you've read them? Uh, oh, Homer being a Clevelander. I was like, as a Simpson? You know... I have well. First off, I'll keep it short. I haven't read them. I was really interested in not the Israel my parents promised me, and meant to pick it up, um, in when it hit the library. Because one of the things that struck me is, is as I recall, it, the artist went to some lengths to reinterpret the final script to the point where 
actually, do you remember which book it was that apparently Joyce Brabner had some problems with the artist on it and wasn't necessarily happy with the I, way the material turned I out? I did not know anything about that. I, well, I could be... Once again, it could be Jeff. <laughs> the other segment that we do the last couple of weeks, which is Jeff imagines news stories with his head. Uh, I could have sworn that happened. but um, So, no, I've been meaning to pick them up at the library or whatever. I run hot and cold in PCAR myself. Uh, PCAR is one of those dudes that I remember at the Comics Journal writing about him way back when and picking up a bunch of his stuff, and I could never quite piece together how I felt. Because, of course, his work was phenomenal when R. Crumb was drawing it, but then whose work wouldn't be phenomenal when R. Crumb yeah. was drawing it? You know? I, I find I find Picard's work really dependent on the artists. Mm-hmm. And the quality of his artists really not... Uh, not dependent, shall we say? Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think that's the case. So for me, I'm very Picard's work. Always, I always felt like I loved the idea of it. But when I went and read it, I was I found his stuff very minimal, and there were like he was. Hmm. It never. It's. It seemed to me to be actually kind of dull in a way that I don't think that Picar himself was actually intending when he was planning on talking about, you know, mundane stories or or using real life to illuminate larger incidents. That being said, there were times where I felt some of his stuff, some of his pieces, usually about his job and usually involving talking to his coworkers. Um, had a snap that actually exceeded necessarily like if you had crumb drawing it fantastic but there were times when even when it were the guys whose work i didn't normally like i want to say were drum and zweeble is that right gary drum and jerry zweeble or am i off on that i was gonna say gary zweeble gary zweeble i don't uh, um uh, 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 i i should google it but anyway um the, the those aside which i thought had a ton of great stuff to them um i i tended to find the other stuff like a little more um just just kind of not i didn't really think there was there there but maybe i was wrong graham i haven't i haven't read neither of the uh the picar books and i'm not a massive picar fan Mm -hmm. i i i want to be and i'm inevitably disappointed when i read the work Mm -hmm. um and so I tend to stay away, to be honest. Yeah, I had, like, a surprising number, and they were probably all first issues, too, of, like, the first eight or nine issues that I was picking up much later than after they came out. Like, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, I think I was I was picking, up the, picking them up. But I really did not... They didn't click. In fact, I thought the movie was a fantastic way to sort of adapt... Picar's work and and almost make it seem a little bit stronger than I thought it necessarily was. But mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's just me. Uh, let's see. Gary Drum, uh, the, 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 the Joe Zabel. Maybe that's who I'm thinking of. Um, but of course, he also had other guys like Joe Sacco or I don't know. I I, I would love to, Alan Moore. I don't know if you saw any of the strips that Alan Moore drew drew for him. He did like a couple of one pagers for Picar. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Those were good. So, anyway, uh, yeah, sorry, Joel. Not only are we five months late in telling you, uh, 
but um, but I think. But also, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Um, We're ooh. great. Matt Miller mm-hmm. asks, by what rationale does Jeff continue to buy DC Comics? Mm-hmm. Under the new management structure, hasn't DC proven itself to be Marvel's equal, at least in lack of respect for creator rights, poor retailer re- relations, and overall creative bankruptcy? Um, yeah, I would say not quite an equal. I mean, let's put it this way. Things are ch- are, have, cha- have changed pretty sharply over the last year and are pretty disgusting, but A... Marvel's got a couple decade head start on new DC. So I'm kind of, we'll see. Also, even with the grotesqueness of what's going on with DC, and there is an exception coming up that I feel like I want to talk about with Graham, um, is that, that, you know, DC does still, it, although it's changing up until really super recently, super, super, as in like it's just sort of starting to crack into the internet hush-hush news gossip stuff. Um, DC was paying royalties, and people were actually seeing money for characters that they created showing up on the screen. That is a very, very, very long way from where Marvel has been. Now, that being said, the stories that I think you must have seen, Graham, the the one on... The, uh, the Bleed and Kill, the digital one? Y- yes. Yes. That could be a game changer for me, to be honest. That is a... For people who have not seen this, the story is that DC Comics is changing its digital um, contract mm-hmm. so that digital is only work for hire. There are no royalties. At all, there there is no incentive. There mm-hmm. is nothing. You get paid for the work you do, and that is it. Even if the work you do becomes the most successful thing on the planet and is reprinted forever, you will see no additional money from it. Yeah, that is appalling. <laughs> it is. Appalling. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just appalling. There yeah. is no other way to put it. Yeah, that that is just. Uh, like words fail me, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. I mean, now it it is worth pointing out two things. Mm-hmm. This appeared in Bleeding Cool, right? Uh, an organization I work for that I am not going to name reached mm-hmm. out to DC and was told off the record that it was not true. Hmm. Not just, not a we'll get back to you, but a blunt that report is untrue. On the other hand of mm-hmm. that, the Bleeding Cool story was not the first time I had heard that. Right. I had heard it months ago. Right. It has been talked about for months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am wondering if the that is not true complete denial that was given to one of the places I work for is uh, pedantic, shall we say. Mm-hmm. That it is a specific fact that was untrue as opposed to the spirit was untrue right right um which is to say i believe that something very similar is happening if not that mm-hmm. um and i think it's terrible i i think it's really really atrocious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i do think that is especially because um well there's a number of factors but uh you know dc 
it, as the time that we speak, I believe that the sale ends tonight, was having a, a sale related to their Injustice Gods Among Us event um, with a bunch of Justice League books on sale digitally and the very first digital issue of Injustice Gods Among Us for free. I downloaded, I read it. Now, it's not the full, I guess, first issue that saw, you know, print, of course, but it was the first digital issue, so it's approximately half the comic um, that opens with, uh, you know, well, it opens with Batman being like, the world's a fascistic nightmare because Superman rules everything, and then flips back to the Superman finding out that Lois is pregnant, Lois going off on a case, and Superman going to tell Batman. Um, And I have to say, although I know that book goes on to become Horrible, And in fact, really, by the time of the last page, which ends up with Jimmy Olsen being shot, is horrible. Um, it is better than just competently written. I would have to say, I think it's Tom Taylor who's the, yeah, the writer on that. Yeah, it's He has chops. He has chops. He actually did a pretty fine job of hitting all the, here's Superman, here's Lois, here's Batman beats. They're not anything new and they're not really supposed to be but those are those characters very recognizably and in a way sort of very enjoyably you know um so and and this is kind of my thing is is that there was a certain amount of the injustice gods among us digital buzz that has been happening that um I think is directly related to the talent of the people involved the idea that they just get paid a flat fee or something like that really is pretty horrible I, I especially in the face of you know DC beginning in the process of either dismantling its own creator contracts or essentially creating a bit of a, a comics book ghetto for uh, creators to work in that is supposed to be the potentially one of the futures of the marketplace is really really alarming and disturbing it's it's yeah, it's alarming and disturbing uh, because DC is doing a lot more digitally, right? And it continues to do a lot more digitally. Uh, it's alarming and disturbing because DC do- does these digital books with the intent of putting them in print. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know what? That's incredibly shitty. Yeah. If I I almost feel they can make a defense of well, it's we're not putting them in print. We're only doing them digitally, and that doesn't make much money. But fuck you! It's part of the business plan that a month after digital release it goes into print. Like right. what? What is the difference mm-hmm. 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 between that and a, 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 a print contract? Right. I, I'm yeah. It's 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 appalling. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I'm I'm. I am very unhappy about it, gentlemen. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, here, here's something. You know, Jeff, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to detail, but you know that uh, Marvel and I have had an interesting week. Yes, that is true. Um, and so I found myself going, uh, why, why am I buying these comics? Mm-hmm. Why am I buying these comics from a company that uh, I actually know... <laughs> <laughs> does not care about me, right? Like, yes. like unlike unlike other people, I actually know. Yeah, we, yeah. Most people can say Marvel Comics does not care about me, and you're like, well, sure, it's a corporation; it doesn't care about anyone but profits or blah blah blah. And it's like, no. In Graham's case, it does not care specifically for Graham McMillan. Uh, um, and I, I really, I had a moment of, 
why why am I giving why am I giving this company my money? Right. Why why am I why why would I do this? Right. Um and I'm still struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh and I find I find it appalling, I guess, <laughs> that it takes a, a a personal connection right. for me to consider uh withdrawing my custom from a company. Right. Um, as opposed to a principled one, I guess. Well, I, but but the odd thing is, mm-hmm. the DC Digital thing might be my my version of your Marvel thing, right? Right, and probably for the same reasons. Like, weirdly, I loved you, and look what you've done. Exactly, exactly. The the DC meant more to you than Marvel does, you know, and so therefore, weirdly what they do as a larger company i guess because of the the i because their characters are iconic to you at that level the idea of what they're doing seems especially heinous and that's kind of what it is for me for marvel comics is you know like it's always an irony i remember hibs like just be like could never understand people who shoplifted superhero comics you know i mean because unless they're doing it for pure money, the whole idea is he's like, they're superheroes. You're supposed to do the right thing, and you're stealing. Like, what? You know. And the unfortunate, the unfortunate story is unfortunate. Is that is that there is a stage at which you identify with those things as actually representing something in a way, and then there's the point at which when they cross that, you know, you you sort of get really upset even though when you look back at the history of the comics industry it really is about people kind of um oh the history of the comic book industry is the history of of terrible terrible horrible shame yeah of of basically (laughs) avaricious capitalism at its worst oh and that's the other piece that i thought you linked to at blog at blog at newsarama that was fascinating to me was beset talking about how shitty the contracts are for everyone and everything. And he's like, it's not just the big two. He's like, these other industries are offering people work that is lower than it was in 1975 with no form of restitution and no way for anything to get better. Well, you remember Scott Shaw getting upset at Boom, right? For for the Adventure Time contracts? Yes. That it was straight up work for hire and it was appallingly priced. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was terrible. Like I, what was it? Was a hundred dollars a page? I, I want to say for full art. Yeah, and it might have been two hundred dollars for a cover or something. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's crazy, mm-hmm. crazy talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the part that I think really frustrates me more than anything. Mm-hmm. Is that you then see Hibbs pointing out that the market has grown like fifteen percent last year? Yeah. Plus, there's digital, which is not factored into that. Yeah. And it's like, so let me get this straight: <laughs> more comics are selling, right? And everyone's getting paid less. Yeah, because the people at top at the top are taking more of it. It's basically, you know, l- late stage American capitalism. You know, like the the late '90s capitalism dick maneuver, you know, just spread to comics. Like I, there's, it's standard for a lot of companies. It's standard for you know, fucking Apple and uh, all the other people that like make me rack my brains and wring my head. Is like, 
workers generally are being shit on and management is taking more. And of course, there's that whole start thing of like, well, they're the ones taking all the risk. But dudes like Boom, like Mark Wade jumped up with a very spirited defense of, you know, Boom at the time and talking about how like the numbers that they sold, like that was all they could really afford to offer to pay. But I'm like, but not with something like Adventure Time. You know what I mean? Not with a book that has been very successful for them. Or also, like, what publishers tend to do is then they, like, if they have one successful book, they farm it out to, you know, they create four more titles, you know, and all of whom have, they bring on people, all of whom get paid, like, you know, these desolation wages. Um, I think the industry is kind of, kind of in a, a really bad, sick place. Um, and I'm fascinated to see if that's going to change or if that's just going to continue to deteriorate um, until something happens. You know, I wonder what the something is. Well, I don't know, because I think you would think that the something would be something more like the something would be something more like monkey brain comics. But I don't know if how that's really working for people, you know, uh, I, in the sense of like, I don't know how much if people can make their make their living at the the money that they're seeing from that. I don't know if that's uh, uh, you know, if that if that's an end game move for a lot of people, you know. Um, I picked up the last couple of issues of Double Barrel, which were I realized I had fallen uh, like two issues behind and picked them up. And there's some phenomenal stuff that if we had more time about, I would rant and rave to everyone to go read. Um, but, I I would I will I will back you up in that. I think Double Barrel continues to be great, and I I too fell oddly behind and like picked up a couple of issues this weekend. I think. Yeah, well, they did have the, they, well, that is they, they they missed they missed a month, right? Um, yeah, they did. They missed. I want to say they almost missed like two full months there, and that was when I fell off. I got the issue after that, but then I missed another two months, and I don't know. They may be late because this issue that I just picked up that I paid full double barrel price for was Which like one ninety nine. Yeah, it was one ninety one now I know. And it was something like hundred and eighty one pages of stuff because they brought on a third barrel. Um third cannon. No, no, third barrel. Uh is uh they were like, look for our next issue right around April seventeenth. You know, and I'm like, huh well, this is the issue that I bought today, and there is no newer issue. So yeah, you know, I think they were trying to make up the schedule again because they fell behind. Yeah, I think so too. So th- they're great; they've been fantastic. But I do remember at one point there was this thing of like, yes, and here's the rewards of working in digital comics, and they like open an envelope and like two dimes fall out or something like that. And it really is. It was kind of I was like, oh shit, they're really probably not making money on this. Well, I, I would I would be very surprised if they are. Well, sure, I I do too. But for me, so I kind of do have that moment of like, well, you know, maybe this underwrites them and works as a PR tool so that when they, when their graphic novels come out, although I'm having that weird moment of like, but am I going to buy the graphic novels now that I've read them? Well, that's just it. Yeah, I've read it. That's, mm-hmm. that's the problem. Like, yeah. I read it once. Am I going to buy it again? Right. I mean, there's a possible because it used to be that I would. I used to, you know, I, you know, the Jeff of like five, six years ago, bought all the singles and then usually bought the trade. And and now that it, weirdly enough, I don't do that. I broke that habit because of space. 
but because of that, I'm sort of like, well, but why would I buy these graphic novels? Like, they're great. I'm really enjoying the work. I really am. And I heartily encourage everyone to read it. But at the same time, I'm having this weird, like, ironically enough, I'm like, well, maybe I would buy it for $5 digital so that I could support them, but I don't really want the copy in the house. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just sort of like, I don't, I, I, but at the same time, I wring my hands thinking like, but this is, this is also what I want. This is such a good, this good work being this done is, by this good is what I want. Yeah, this is what I want to support. Exactly. That, that's what it really comes down to. It comes down to, I don't want it, but I want it to exist. Mm-hmm. Like, am I willing to spend money on principle the same way that I am willing to not spend money on principle? Yeah, exactly. And in the past, uh, up until five years ago, I was great at spending money on principle, not so good about not spending money on principle, and it seems to slowly be reversing. It's not just because you've become cheap, Jeff. I've certainly become cheaper. Yeah, I certainly... I used to throw away a lot more money on on my... I mean, I, I say it half as a joke, but also half not, because what you've basically said is, I used to be great at spending money, now I'm not so great at spending money. Yeah, no, it's really true. No, it totally is. I've definitely become cheaper. I've become a little... Um, stingier with my cash or or I'm putting my cash toward weirder ends whereas before it was like but yeah I mean when I look seriously people will have to take my word on it but if if people saw the amount of money that I spent on comic books and DVDs I saw the I saw the amount of comic books and DVDs in your house so I can guess yeah so right exactly and that is toned that's somewhat toned down I still drop a surprising chunk of cash on digital but not as much as I used to a year ago and I'm curious to see how much I'll be spending it more in a year you know like it, how that's going to change but some of that is just kind of like I'm you know trying to pay attention to the bills some of it is his money's going other places and and some of it is just sort of the space but but once weirdly enough once you I do think that this is once I break the idea of the object like having the issues of all-star superman like as digital singles or whatever makes me really not need to have the collection i guess for for whatever reason i think digital breaks a lot of the old mindset down anyway because when i was thinking about like do i want to support marvel Mm -hmm. i had this moment of i can totally just stop buying now because i can just pick up everything I'll, i'll miss if i decide to go back and it will probably be cheaper Right, right. Yeah, there is that. I mean, you could, they could, we could start asking people to send codes to you no, as well. God knows. No, no. <laughs> I have some excess codes that no, I keep meaning to give out no. on Twitter. Yeah, give them on Twitter. No. <laughs> Why? Just out of curiosity. Because, because here's the thing. I don't care that much about Marvel, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. If I decide I'm not going to support them, I will be fine with not reading the books. Mm-hmm. Because all I'm not getting that much of Marvel anyway. Right. right. You know, I'm getting three series, and I'm getting them all digitally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I, I... If I... I don't know. I just... I feel like it would be easy enough for me to, to stop. Uh, especially because if I wanted to go back and get them all digitally. I don't know. It's a different mindset for me. I, I just feel that if I, if I was going to stop... I would want to stop. Right. Well, I understand. Well, it's a fascinating idea. If we end up... <laughs> Do you think we could still have a podcast if you and I stopped buying DC and Marvel <laughs> Comics? 
We could still have a podcast. Uh, a, no one would listen. Uh, <laughs> it would be really weird. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would be a very different podcast. Right. I think it would be as well. Although I think there's such a weird mix of... Like, honestly, I've quite enjoyed today talking about the capes or days of future past or some of that stuff. I, I, I sort of am a little hand-wringing about the idea of us just becoming a, a nostalgia cast or something. You know, intermittently sprinkled with like, hey, here's the insane Ultimo book that I read or, you know, you introducing us to the now of Brown or something like that. But I don't I don't know. It would be very different. Part of me is like, but nobody would really want to hear that, would they? Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. That That's that's my thought. I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but just because you said Noah Brown, I just suddenly remembered. I said it on Blogging News Rama, and I'm going to say it here. People who like weird, wonderful British comics, Dark Horse is doing the best of Milligan and McCarthy in September. Oh, yeah. It's in this month's solicits. It is staggeringly cheap. Yeah. It is $25, I think, for a hardcover uh, with 264 pages. Yeah, that's, that um, is a and it, is, it is basically everything, apparently. It's wow. Skin, it's Rogan Josh, it's Summer of Love, it's Sooner or Later, it's Strange Days, it's it's like the whole shebang. That is stunning. Um, yeah, and it's it's a great price point, and these are really great comics. I actually uh, reread Rogan Josh and Skin last mm-hmm. week, mm-hmm. Um, just because the announcement brought it back, and I was like, oh, I, I've got those books. Um, they're great. Skin is phenomenal. Mm. Skin really was one of those. Skin made me very nostalgic for the 90s in the UK when you had like Deadline running and Crisis and Revolver mm-hmm. and you had basically outlets for successful creators to do non-genre work mm-hmm. um, and get paid for it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I you know I actually that may still exist in the UK it doesn't exist in the US really yeah um, because have you read Skin? no 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 do you know what it is? Uh no, I mean I I know of the 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 uh, epic legend that is Milligan and McCarthy, but um... Skin is Milligan and McCarthy and Carol Swain, who is actually coloring McCarthy's pencils in pastel. Wow, um, and it is a I'm gonna say forty odd page graphic novel, um, about a skinhead in the 1970s called Barton Aitchinson. Mm-hmm who is a thalidomide kid. And is that a thing? Oh, yeah, I do remember that. I do remember seeing some of the cover art for that and being fascinated. Um, And it is... It's wonderful, but it's so unlike everything else they've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's very much skinhead fiction, for want mm-hmm. of a better way of putting it. It is brutal. It is not, like, wacky surreal like their other stuff. Right. It is, it's a very cruel book. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes to a very strange place at the end hmm. that is a significant tonal shift from everything that comes before huh. um, but it's wonderful and it's really affecting and effect mm-hmm. it, it it's really emotionally powerful mm. um and it but it's it's like it's still like nothing else I've read in comics. Wow. Partly because Carol Swain's pastels over Milligan's uh, over McCarthy's pencils are just beautiful, mm-hmm. but doesn't do it in panels. Every page is one complete image with multiple actions happening. Hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Milligan is writing in character. 
Hmm. So he's writing uh, this very... He does it again in Enigma, actually, where he writes in character. The narrator is a character of the story as opposed to an omnipresent narrator. Yes. Um, but in Skin, it's he's essentially this skinhead thug narrating the story. Mm. And you never see that. You never see him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Milligan... Uh, God damn it. It is a shame. Milligan was brilliant. He did some brilliant fucking shit. You know? Yeah. Um... So, yeah, skin, skin is skin is worth the price of this book all and so. I can tell everyone that right now. The fact that you also get Rogan Josh sooner or later, Summer of Love in there. I mean, it's and it's, Strange Days is Strange Days in there. Strange, as well? Yeah, everything's in there. son of a bitch. That is all, extraordinary. All, all of their uh, creator and stuff is, is in there. Wow, 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 wow. I know for twenty five dollars. That is a stunner. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, people. You should be pre-ordering that shit because holy crap! Yeah, I gotta talk to hip Is it is that on? Would that be on the current form order? The, the uh, thing that just came uh, out? Yeah, the one that came out yesterday. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Oh, holy smokes! Before I forget, there's two things that I should mention in terms of other things that are newsworthy. Um, that if I hadn't spent so much time talking about capes, we probably could have talked about in terms of like news in a way of being upbeat. Holy crap. I, I'm assuming you would agree with me on this, Graham. But, like, this, the recent Eisner nominations were great. That was a fucking great slate of nominations, I think, for the Eisners that just got announced, like, two feel, days ago. I, I am very much, where the fuck is Fiona Staples? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, I really am. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? Really? You're nominating all these other things and Fiona Staples does not get a Best Artist nod? Really? Well, but... I, 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 I really am. I'm like, uh, I don't know. How, how's this? My problem with the eyes, the thing with the Eisners, and I could be wrong, is I think that um, there's always going to be people that ha- you are like, why isn't so-and-so on there? I think to me, the slate of a good Eisner slate of nominations is that there are no why the fuck is that person on there you know what I mean yeah and I I, sure. I, I could be wrong but that's kind of how I feel is is like the no there, before... there there is a lot of, of really really great great talent yeah um being recognized which is really nice I'm I loved Brandon Graham's up for best writer I'm really happy to be nominated for writer yeah um I I'm ex static the band deck of the nods that did I'm so happy that Colleen's up for oh yeah uh, best pencil or inker and best colorist and and should be because the colors on Bandette are fantastic also for other people I was going to mention one of the books that I did pick up this week Bandette number four which just came out 99 cents something like 21 pages I guess it goes down to 18 once you cut out the cover and the about and credits or whatever but is a astonishingly good issue and I I love that book anyway and I thought that 4 was maybe the best issue yet and was just phenomenal Um, it really was a hey worth the wait yeah absolutely Mm because it feels like it's been a long time since Bandai 3 maybe it's not but it feels like it's been no it's super long I mean I really was like when when the first issue of Bandai came out I'm like oh my god and I was kind of like are we going to get this every month because you know it's less than 21 you know less than 20 pages I was like it could maybe happen and then clearly didn't um let's just say I'm really so absurdly glad that was one of the the it and Double Barrel are I guess the only books that I have 
alerts set for on Comixology because they're mm. digital only books, and I'm really glad that I do because I just picked that up, and it was phenomenal. But but yeah, no, I really feel that the the Os- Eisner's really, and for most nominations in the comics industry, there's I think always more good work than is capable of being recognized. The yeah. problem is is that when the mainstream comes in and hogs the spotlight too much. So like I said, for me no, it's... I th- yeah, I, I love that there's not that much of a mainstream. Yeah, there's... There. It... I, I, and also, that what there is seems worthy. You know? Yeah. I, I'm not going to complain that Fatal, Saga, and Hawkeye have so many knots in there. Well, that's it. And I mean, honestly, I mean, just mention that list. Hawkeye is the only one that you think of as main I mean, you know, there's our new mainstream, but like five years ago, the fact that you're sort of saying like, oh yeah, you know, an action, two action adventure books from Image get so many nods, it's okay because they're worthy. It's like the fact that there is no, and I mean, I love Greg Capullo, but I am so relieved that that's, that the, that we're not looking at, you know, nine million death of the family nomination issue, issue nominations. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. also I, uh, um, I, I had to mention this cause it's actually too good a line not to, cause I, I was swapping email with someone who was basically, um, laughing at the people who are upset that, that before Watchmen didn't get any nods. Um, and, and the person's line to me in an email, which I thought was so great. It's like, it's like someone complaining that their blackface costume didn't win a prize at the Halloween party. And I, I think that was <laughs> the best fucking line ever. So that, that is a good line. Yeah, so absolutely had to use it. But uh, people, if you're looking for good books and and stuff that's enjoyable, honestly, I think the whatnots who listen to this podcast really regularly are reading um, uh, the majority of the stuff that's here, but check out the Eisner nominees for more good books. Cause it's uh, any book actually that ended up in that list that I haven't read pretty much jumped into the top of my, I've really got to check this out list because of how good everything else is by comparison. So that's, that's a nice place to end it. I think Jeff, I think so too. I think so too, Graham. Um, With us being optimistic for once. I know, and genuinely optimistic, yeah. not just under-the-barrel optimistic. Exactly. Hey, comics. <laughs> exactly. I kind of like the way you phrased that. That was actually perfect. Okay. Oh, I, I, I will say one last thing about being optimistic about comics, because I said this on Twitter earlier today. Uh, in the mail today, I got my copy of Dylan McConus's Bite Me mm. for, for backing her Kickstarter. Mm. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading that. It's going to be... I am. Um, I'm the busiest man on the planet, and so it's going to be a while before I get a chance to crack it open, but I'm really looking forward to it. It, it genuinely made my day when I got that in the mail. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, the good news is, thanks to the skip week, it's actually going to be two weeks before we podcast again, so maybe you'll have time to read it in between then and now. I know. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to, because it means I'll read it before sometime, which is probably the next time I'll see Dylan, so I could be like, Dylan! Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I read your book. It was great. Thank you. So, in fact, that might well be inspiration for you to actually get it read, I guess. Would be the fact that you're going to see her and be, you'll be like, oh, I read your book, it was great. Listeners, we will not be back next week. No, we we will take next week off. Um, but we will be back two weeks from now. Yeah. For a limited engagement. That's right. Well, it's not that Because limited. we're only back for two weeks and then we're two off weeks. again. Exactly. I'm away again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we're back in two weeks for a limited engagement of two weeks. Yeah. 
but um, but don't worry, you know, we we come and go like the something something lyrics. Um. <laughs> well said. Thank you. Good I thought so too. That man. I think I think you did that well. No, no one noticed, Jeff. Good. <laughs> I thought so. I'm glad. I'm glad you thought so too. Okay, that's fantastic. Uh, Graham, uh, do you want to sing us out? Um, uh, no, 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 I don't because oh. I want you to do Nixon first because everyone agreed with me. Oh yeah, everyone did like Nixon. But what should I? What should I do? What should I say? Oh, um, is, oh go. Is there like a final uh, entry in the Brave and the Bold, uh, the B and B? A column that they were oh, man, running. Oh, we didn't even do the B and B column, did we? Didn't even talk about that. No, we. Um, oh no! What you should do is, uh, have you? Can you get to the internet right now? Yes, I'm on the internet. Okay, go to uh, the DC Comics blog and read the hilarious one line that Bob Harris wrote today about the Joker's daughter. Oh my God! Okay, DC Comics blog. Yeah, it's it's uh, go to news and then for fans. Right, blog dot fans. Uh, drawing a line, a look at the injustice. No, 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 comic. no, 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 no. The, the what's new in the new Fifty Two Joker's daughter? Question mark, exclamation mark, one. And oh. also, look at the drawing, by the way. Oh my god, that is joking, <laughs> right? They are sort of what's new in the new Fifty Two Joker's daughter? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's let me give this drawing. Something Please. evil lurks under Gotham City, and it wears the Joker's face. Enjoy, Bob Harris. How was that? Was it okay, Nixon? Very good, Brian. Very good. Uh, that's a much jauntier Nixon than I have. <laughs> exactly. I'll be Nixon. <laughs>